Jewish audio on Kabbalah.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Sheila, borrowing, Ufi Kodin, and being a watchman to an item, to an object, belonging to someone else. Pedic Shlishi, chapter 3, continuing with these laws. This is a very short chapter, only four paragraphs. Aleph 1, the question is, at what point in time does the borrowing begin? There has to be a beginning. At what point in time does it segue, does it move from the ownership of the lender to the ownership or responsibility of the borrower? What's that magic point? So here we have a bunch of different scenarios. One, Aleph. If somebody borrows an animal from his fellow, Mr. A lends Mr. B an animal. The lender sends the animal. You know, these days we have FedEx, UPS. Back then they didn't have FedEx, they didn't have UPS. The lender sends the animal beyond in the hands of his son. He says to his son, hey son, deliver this animal to my friend down the block. He has a messenger, an emissary, a proxy. Or a servant. Even if he sends it with the hands of the son, servant or emissary of the borrower, it could be the son, emissary, or agent, or, or, or servant of the lender, or the borrower. The bottom line is, is that in transit, something happened to the animal. Omesa, the animal died. Before it enters into the domain and the responsibility of the borrower. In all of the above situations, the borrower is exempt because he never took delivery. Unless he did take delivery. What do we mean? In the following scenarios, he's considered as having taken delivery. The borrower said to the lender, I give you permission, I authorize you, send it via my son, via my servant, via my messenger, via your Hebrew servant or your agent. Or similar scenario, the lender said, I am about to send this object you want to borrow, with the hands of your son, your servant, your agent, my son, my Hebrew servant, my proxy, my agent. The Omar and in all of the above, the borrower said, yes, agreed. Shalach send it, and they have an email to prove it. Veshilcha, and it was sent. And now it died in transit. Because this was clearly accepted both ways. This gives obligation to the borrower, even though it died in transit, he has to pay for it. Shilcha, the exception is, if the lender sent it through his own Canaanite servant, remember, the Canaanite servant of the lender is an extension of the lender. Even though the borrower authorized him and said, send it. And it died in root. Potter is exempt. Why? This is the exception. Because always the hands of the Canaanite servant is an extension of the hand of the master. Therefore, it's still in the domain of the lender. Has not yet left the domain of the lender. Now comes an interesting scenario. Let's say the lender and the borrower, they know each other. And the animal has been in the possession of the borrower many times. He's familiar. It's not something that's strange. So the borrower said, don't worry about transportation. Tap the animal with your stick. Give it a little tap. Which means spur it on. And I'm telling you, he told me on its own, it's going to come to my field. Because your animal knows my field. It'll know where to go. Okay, sounds fine. Sounds fair. Also, Hamash that's exactly what the lender did. The problem is the animal never made it. The animal went to Pakoim instead. The borrower is not responsible for it. Until it enters the borrower's domain. What do you mean? You, the borrower, says, just give it a tap with the stick, it'll come. I lied. I was wrong. As they used to say when I was a kid in Newark, do me something. But if it died on the way, Potter is exempt. So also, the same law applies when he returns the animal to the owner. When the borrower is returning the animal, if he sends it through someone else, the animal dies before it gets to the lender, then the borrower is responsible. It was in his domain. He sent somebody. He's obligated. Because it's still in the responsibility of the borrower. Unless the lender authorized that agent to transport it. You know, it's not for no reason that transport companies like UPS and FedEx and all of those, they ask you, do you want insurance? And how much would you like to insure it for? What if something happens along the way? Stuff happens. Again, the exception is he sent it through his Canaanite servant. Even though the lender said, send it. He's culpable. Because the hand of the servant is always an extension of the hand of the master. Did not yet leave the domain of the lender. When does this apply? If it's being returned in the term of borrowing. Let's say the borrowing was for 30 days, and he's returning it 28 days later. He doesn't need it. He finished what he's doing. 
But if it's after the 30-day term, he's exempt because the term is over and the borrowing is over. And he's sending it back. Because after the days of borrowing, the term of borrowing is over, he no longer has the law of a borrower, which is the worst condition to have. Suddenly he becomes like a paid watchman, which is the best. Why does he become like a paid watchman? He's placed in this category because he derived benefit from having the animal in his possession. So that's his payment. But because therefore, in Nishmas, if it was taken captive and they died, after the term, is exempt. anything similar? three. Just to complicate things, person A borrows a cow from person B. If he borrowed it for half a day, and he rented it for half a day, let's say the guy is in the cow rental business. He says, you know what, you rented it for me for half a day, and the other half a day you can have it for free, meaning you can borrow it. If he borrowed it today, and he rented it tomorrow, he borrowed one cow, and rented another cow. And one of the cows died, and it wasn't clear which cow was which. These are all situations of doubt. Hamashil Eimer, the lender, says, Shula Mesa, obviously the lender says, the one you borrowed died, because that will benefit him. Or the day of the borrowing, it died. The the hour of the borrowing is when it died. And the watchman says, the borrower says, or the renter, I have no idea. So one of them is certain, the other is uncertain. Or the borrower said, the one that was rented dies, it benefits him. The rented day is when it died. The hour of rental is when it died. And the lender says, I don't rightly know. Hey, next scenario. One said, I don't know. And the other says, I don't know. The law in all of the above is the one who wants to take money out of the other's domain has to bring proof. Well, if there is no proof, if there is no proof, then if he's certain, the renter should swear that the rented animal died. Or if he's not certain, he should swear that he has no idea. But he thought there he walks, because there is no proof otherwise. One of them says it's borrowed, and therefore it would be to his advantage. And the other says it's rented. Let him swear that the rented one died. In a normal way, as he argued, and then he can make him also swear that it's the rented animal that died. This is called the Gilgoshua, rolling an oath from one into the other. Dalit for the closing paragraph in this chapter. He lent him two animals, half a day borrowing. So now we have two animals, half and half. The lender says that it died at the time of borrowing because that's to his advantage. And the other one says, the borrower says, one died during a lending moment. I'm not sure about the other one. So one of them, he is certain that he is culpable. The other, he's not sure. Meaning that there's no oath he can take, he has to pay both. The plot thickens. So he gave him three animals. Two borrowed. And one rented. The lender says, in our, it is the two borrowed animals who died. Mashiach the borrower says, no. Yes, for sure, one of the borrowed animals died. But the second. Shemesa, which died any day, I'm uncertain. If the second animal that died is a borrowed one or the rented one, which the obligations would clearly be different. Similarly to the earlier law being that he cannot take an oath. Because he says, any day, I don't know. He has to pay both. And a little bit later, we're going to learn the laws of litigation. Where he explains, he's boyer dinzedis law will be explained. Okay, yitzvoy and similar laws. We call upayim from all of the litigants in yachol If they ever are unable to take an oath, what happens? We take some mishalman and how they pay. Well, they say tamim mishalman and for what reason they would pay. End of chapter three. Rambam mishneh Torah. Hilchais the laws of she'ela borrowing, ufikodin and giving someone an object to guard. Perek revii chapter four. We've learned earlier repeatedly there are arbo shomrim. There are four types of custodians or watchmen, or four people who can have someone else's object in their possession legally, and they are shomer chinam. The fellow who guards someone else's object as a favor. He's not getting paid. He's a shomer. He's a guardian, a watchman. Chinam, for free. Then there is shomer, sachar, someone who guards your object, but he gets paid for it. So we expect him to do a better job. He's getting paid. It's not a favor. Then there is a shoel, a borrower, and a socher, a renter. What's the difference between a borrower and a renter? The borrower does not pay rent. The borrower gets it as a favor, so he has more liability. The renter pays rent, so he has less liability. We learned about the renter, we learned about the borrower, and now we're going to segue to the watchman, to the bailey, the watchman, the person who guards someone else's object for nothing, for free. Will you guard my object? Sure. You want money? No, it's for free. Oh, no, I need a discount. If somebody has someone else guard his object without pay, 
Do me a favor. I'm going out of town. I have some very expensive jewelry. It's worth $3 million. Keep an eye on my jewelry. Sure. Then, God forbid it should not happen like it happens. It was stolen. Hey, oh, it was lost. Where's my jewelry? Oh, a terrible thing happened. Thieves came into my house and stole your jewelry. Really? Maybe you helped them? Maybe you stole my jewelry? Maybe? Who knows? Suddenly, you know, when there's $3 million between people, they're not such close friends anymore. The halacha rooted in the Chumash is that the guy who was watching the other guy's stuff for nothing goes to court, holds a Torah, takes an oath, and he says, I swear in the name of God, I didn't do anything wrong. And he's exempt. He has to pay nothing. This is actually rooted in the Torah. Shenema, the verse says, if somebody gives somebody else something to watch, the object was stolen from the man's house. Then the watchman approaches God. The expression here of God means God through the courts. He approaches the court, the dead being representing God. And he takes an oath. Elikim also means an oath. He takes an oath in the name of God. If he did not extend his hand, and his friend's object, did he not help the thing disappear? That's what we call in the thief industry an inside job. Now, once the guy is taking an oath, we learned earlier about a Gilgul Shavuah. One oath can beget another oath. We can have him take any oath which will help us ascertain that he is not guilty. And within this oath, we roll another oath into it. That in general, he did nothing that would be considered negligence. He didn't leave the door wide open. He didn't shut the alarm. He didn't turn off the camera. He guarded and watched the object just as a watchman is supposed to. He didn't extend his hand. He didn't do a little stuff that he shouldn't have done. And then all of a sudden the thieves came in. Uh, when you start doing stuff you shouldn't do, you already take responsibility, even for out-of-control stuff that happens. Because if it was stolen, after he did what he shouldn't have done to this object, is responsible for the object. And this follows the principle we espoused and learned earlier of the beginning is that he was negligent. In the middle of his negligence, some guy came in and robbed his house. Because you begin with negligence, you're culpable. So the Torah actually tells us that a shomer chinam, someone who's watching somebody else, guarding somebody else's object, as a favor, is not liable if something is lost or stolen. Now, my friends, if he was getting paid to watch it, then he is liable if it's lost or stolen. As long as it's not an armed robbery, as long as it's somebody who snuck into the house, you should have made sure the window was closed. So shomer chinam is potter, a watchman who watches as a favor, is exempt, is not culpable for geneva, petty thievery, va'abed, and the object getting lost. Where's my object? I don't know. I, as one of my kids used to say, it's appeared. Bays to being the verse exempts his fellow who's doing you a favor and watching your object. It exempts him from petty thievery. He's not responsible. How much more so? Why certainly he's not responsible from great accidents, from terrible traumatic events. Again, what's an example of a terrible traumatic event? Shibura, the animal gets injured. Was in an accident, a head-on ox collision in the carpool lane. Ushbuya, or the animal is taken captive. The bad guys come. The pirates of the Caribbean, they take him captive. Ulamesar just dies. Nothing lives forever. Who provided? Yes. Obviously, if he's not liable for petty thievery and getting lost, which a paid watchman is liable for, he's certainly not liable for the stuff even a paid li- watchman is not liable for, such as injured, taken captivity, died. The who provided that? That he did not do anything that would be considered negligence. He didn't panky-panky with this object. What if he decided to take the object out of the safe and look at it and admire it? And, whoa. That's uh, not kosher. But if he extended his hands and he was negligent in somebody else's object, the guy told him to watch a tray of sushi. He pulls out the tray of, mm, it smells good, and all of a sudden a sushi robber comes and steals it. Chayob, when it should have been deep in the fridge. Chayob, he is culpable for any accidents that would happen. Now we say he has to guard it as a normal guard, as a normal watchman does. Well, how do normal watchmen watch things? The answer is, it depends what kind of things. What's the regular style of watchmen? It depends what they're watching. For example, yes, because there are some items that one is watching, guarding. The normal style of guarding, it would be the base shot. You put it in the gate area, past the gatehouse of your estate, and it sits there. Again, for example, massive beams. Nobody steals beams. Big stones. Where do you put it? Inside the gate. It's safe. You know what? That's why I keep my own beams and my own stones. Yes, because there are other types of items that the normal acceptable manner of guarding them. So you put it in your courtyard, not by the gate, but deep inside the courtyard. When you would keep your objects, for example, what's an example of a courtyard object? Packages of flax. Flax is very bulky. The grande ones. The big ones. Or anything else that's large and bulky, you can't put it in your living room. It'll take up the whole living room and get in the way of the grand piano. Yes, because there are other objects 
which one guards. We all say the normal way of guarding them is you put it in your house. You're going, for example, Simba, somebody gives you an expensive designer garment from Nordstrom's, from Bloomingdale's, not from Sears. Vitalis or an expensive garb, a mink coat. You don't leave your mink coat in the courtyard. You put it in your house. Where do you put it in your house? In your closet, together with your own mink coat. And then there's an object, we'd all say that the manner of guarding it, is to put it in a box, a bimigdal or a locked chest. This is what we would call today a safe. And you lock it. You gain, for example, very expensive silk clothing. We have some people here in the Shmata business that can tell you that they're very expensive silk clothing. They're called Shmata. And then there's stuff made out of silver. Stuff made out of gold. You don't leave them around in your living room or in your closet. So when somebody gives you something to guard, you have to guard it responsibly. Depends what it is. There are different safe places for different objects. You don't have to put beams and big stones in your safe, and you don't leave gold and silver in your gateway. There's a beautiful expression in Talmud which we should take very seriously in life. The Talmud says, the mouse is not the thief. The hole in the wall of your house is the thief. If you cemented, if you closed up the, wall, the hole in the wall of your house, the mouse would be going to someone else's house. You don't have vulnerabilities. So you have to place things where they belong. Otherwise, this is called negligence. Now, he says in Gimel 3, Hashem, a guard, a watchman, somebody who watches your object. He's a nice fellow, but he's a little bit, you know, spacey. And he puts your object in an inappropriate place. From there it was stolen. From there it was lost. I feel that even because beyond his control, for example, he put the object in an inappropate place, and then Shinoflet Lake, a fire got to be broke out. The son of Kalabais, the whole house got burned. The whole house burned down, including the guy's object. But being that to begin with, he put it in an inappropriate place. This is called negligent. And he's obligated to pay. Even though he put the object together with his own objects, if it is appropriate to put in a special place for safekeeping, fine. But if it's not appropriate as a special place for safekeeping, even though he put it with his own stuff, the guy gave him a, a mink coat. He put it with his own mink coat. Where does he keep it? In the den, where everybody sees it. Everybody's going to be tempted to take the mink coat. Mink coats are very expensive. Ask the minks. Chayav is liable. You're allowed to be negligent to your own stuff. You can't be negligent with somebody else's stuff. When you're negligent with somebody else's stuff, you're liable. Dalid, moving right along, the plot tickens. Haksopin, where does one put money for safekeeping? Silver. Where do you put silver? It's a big problem. What's safe? You know, people, they, they, they have something valuable. They have uh, jewelry or, or, or money. What do they put it? In their pajama drawer. The thief is never going to look by my pajamas. Let me tell you something. I know a thief. The first place he looked is by your pajamas. So you got to outsmart the thief. Maybe the thief wears pajamas. Haksopin, <laughs> silver and gold coins. Lam Shmira, the truth is, says, Halacha, this is a mission of Gemara Rambam, there is no safe place for valuable coins, Elabakarka, unless you bury it in the ground. This is the equivalent of our safe. You need to have a safe safe. And they used to bury money in the ground. You got to make sure while you're burying it that there's nobody watching with a telescope. The bottom line is it's a big headache to have money. But we'll take the chance. The Yitin Aleyem Tefach Avari has to put at least a hand breath of, of earth, of soil. Or another option. A Yitin Aleyem you bury it in the wall, you hide it in the wall. Which part of the wall? Not in the hollow part of the wall because everybody goes and goes bang, 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 they want to know if there's something in here. They can tell by clopping because they're expert cloppers. But you put it by Tefach Asamach Lekeri, you put it in the hand breath next to the beam. That way you can clap all day, you won't know because the solidness of the beam doesn't allow the hollow sound to get changed. So don't put it in the middle of the wall. Only idiots do that. Maybe the thieves will dig in the middle of the wall. Thieves know where to look. Thieves break into a house. They have a pattern. They go exactly first in a pajama drawer. And then they go to the middle of the wall. And then they go to soft patches of earth. They know. They've been trained in jail for years. If it was appropriately locked up in a, in a safekeeping box, or he created, he conceived of a hiding place, which was uh, the, the most amazing hiding place in the world, where no one would be aware of it. Even if he locked it in a box, I found an amazing hiding place. That's considered liable because expensive stuff has to be buried in the ground or appropriately in the wall where you can't tell by tapping. Therefore, he's obligated to pay. Commentaries say nowadays you have to put it in a safe. If you don't put it in a safe, you can't just stick it in your underwear drawer. You speak God forbid to people who have been robbed. They know that these thieves knew exactly where to go. The most common hiding places. A good place to place expensive jewelry is in the Cheerios. They never look in Cheerios. Some of the halachic experts have ruled of course, it reduces cholesterol. The same applies to any object which is light in weight. 
Then I caught them on the same thing. Buried in the ground will not harm it. Then they hate her quickly. Kigain, for example. Lishenes shall kesef slabs of silver. Then shall the shows up slabs of gold, which are much more valuable. Babylon and precious stones. Shainlam shmira ella bekarka. The only true safety for objects of this value is in the ground. In our contemporary times, in a safe. And I tend to agree with this opinion. If you undertake to guard something very precious, put it in the appropriate place, bury it deep in the ground. Here's an interesting law. A guy comes into somebody's house or into a hotel. He's running very late. Shabbat is coming and he says, hey, here's a very expensive, precious, uh, I don't know what, can I have you put it away? The guy says, sure. But it's now, it's almost Shabbat. It's too late to go into the backyard and start digging and find quiet and security and so on. So what does he do? He sticks it in the safest place he knows. He's not obligated to trouble himself or to bury it. Based on these objects, until after Shabbos. And you have to understand that a guy is busy, and you can't just do that. And if he procrastinated and waited until after Shabbos in order to bury them, that's fine. But then and he didn't bury them. He got busy on Saturday night. And the object was stolen. Or forcibly taken. He's culpable. Because right after Shabbos, he should have buried them responsibly. However, if the fellow is a Torah scholar, there are two interpretations. One interpretation is the guy who owns the object is a Torah scholar. What's the difference? The difference is that back then, beer was a very affordable commodity. People would make Abdullah on beer. Wine was very expensive. Only Torah scholars would shell out the high price for wine. So if he's a Torah scholar, the guy assumes he's going to come looking for money to pay for wine. Therefore, he might as well wait and not bury it, because he's coming any second. Another interpretation, the guard, the watchman is a Torah scholar. So therefore, he has a right to make Abdullah first. He has to wait until after Havdola, and only then does he assume liability. He doesn't have to bury it before he makes Havdola. What if he gives his fellow money? He's on the road. He says, do me a favor. Take this money. It's a lot of money. It's a billion dollars. Take this money and bring it to your house and lock it up safely. He sent money. He had him transfer the money from place to place. He thought he was a Brinks truck. He says, here, take my expensive cash. The question is, what's the safe place to keep something when you're journeying? The answer is the safest place is bound in your palm. Because that's what the Torah says. Bound in your palm is the safest place to keep money. Or better yet, from experience, bound in a purse on your belly. Not in what we call a fanny pack. Because that's behind you. You never know what someone's going to do behind you. In front of you. You can get one of in front of him. Until he gets home, and he'll bury them appropriately. This is a big problem. Because you have all kinds of thieves, purse snatchers, pickpocketers. This is not a simple thing. They know exactly where to look. So therefore you have to put it in an, expense, in an appropriate place. But he didn't bind it in his palm. Or on his belly, so even if there was a situation where people came in with big guns, there's nothing they could have done anyway. Chayyab Shalom is obligated to pay because he did not deal with it responsibly. But these guys came in with massive machine guns. Because to begin with, he was liable. Maisa, there's a story. Who gave his friend money to guard for him. He placed the money. He had a partition made out of wood, like one by twos. He had a wooden partition of twigs. And he hid the money in the thickness of this partition, which one would say would be okay. Because it's not the first place a thief would look. He, he, he placed it within, safely. They were stolen. He is liable. He is liable. We just finished saying it's a good place. It may be a good place for thieves, but it's a very bad place for fire. Because twigs are very vulnerable to fire. They're flammable. We have to always be concerned with fire. You know, safes have to be fireproof. You can't just leave money in a place susceptible to fire because money is flammable. Being that he didn't bury it in the ground where fire is not going to harm it. Or in a thick wall, the fire is not going to get there. Peshayahu is liable. Even though guys came in with big machine guns and they took everything from everybody. Why? Because to begin with, he put it in an inappropriate place. As long as the negligence is there at the beginning, the safety even though an urgency, out of control, tragedy happens at the end, Chayab is culpable. So also anything similar. Zion 7. 7 out of 9. If somebody gives his fellow, his friend, something to guard, then Caleb could be utensils, Bengois, or money. He gave him candlesticks. He said to him, Hi, I'm back. Give me my object. The guy said, Your, your object? Uh, let me think. I have no idea where I put it. 
I have a vague recollection that I buried your money. I have no idea in which state. I don't know where. Hamptonly, wait a while. I'll start looking. I'll do research. Lance, I'll find it. I'll get back to you. The guy's looking at him like he's from Mars. Are you kidding? This is my life savings. This is considered negligent. He has to pay him right away. That's not responsible. Responsible is you know where you buried it. Responsible is you know where it is. Don't act irresponsibly with somebody else's life savings. Now comes a very big question. A fellow lives his life with his wife, with his children, with his butler, with his employees. Somebody comes and says, here, would you watch this for me? It's normal that the guy tells his wife, here, put this away. It's normal he tells his adult children, his butler. When somebody places an object for safekeeping with somebody who is a homeowner, whether it's utensils, big noise, or money, the rule of thumb is that he knows he's also exposing himself to the wisdom of the guy's wife or the guy's children. His family members who are adult, mature people, who mock it, they are all part of his team. So you can't say, why would you give it to your wife? What do you mean? This is my wife. I give everything to my wife. It's a community property state. Just kidding. But if he gave it to his children, or they say in his family members, his grandchildren are not counting their babies. Here, take it here. Here's a million dollars. Go play on the freeway. He gave it to his servants. You know, servants are not the... Somebody has a lot of servants. He has a lot of thievery. Adults are children. Not the most honest of people. He gave it to one of his relatives. You know, the brother-in-law that just came out of jail. That one. They don't live with him in the house. They're not regulars. He doesn't support them. So they're not trustworthy. Certainly. Why certainly? He gave it to a stranger. This is considered liable. This is considered negligence. The high of the shaman is obligated when somebody gives you an object to guard. You've got to be responsible with it. The wife is okay. The children are okay. The household members are okay. But anybody who is not 100% is not okay. Unless the second watchman could bring proof that he did nothing wrong. Commission Bayanov, as has already been explained, then he could become an extension after the fact of the first watchman. By the way, as I explained in the introduction, this book of the Rambam, book 13, has more stories than any other book. There's a story with a fellow, who gave money to someone else to watch. When his son of Mashrebali, what did the guard, the one who's supposed to watch them do? He gave it to his mother. He says, Here, Mama, put this away in a safe place. And she hid them. But she didn't bury them. She just hid them. And even when they were stolen. Now the question is, is he and she liable or not? Our sages say, let's analyze this. The watchman himself is not liable to pay the nation of son of Lehman because he gave them to his mother. People trust their mother. It's normal. My mother. Shakol, I'm not getting anybody who gives somebody something to watch. We just said that he has in mind the guy's immediate family will also be part of his network of trustworthy people. His mother is trustworthy. Even though the watchman did not take the time and the effort to say, Mama, this belongs to somebody else. Yes, he could argue, even though I didn't say mama, this belongs to someone else. If she thinks it's mine, she'll really be careful because my mother loves me. Essentially, if she thinks they're mine, which mother wouldn't do for a child? Okay, maybe the mother is liable. Maybe she has to pay from her uh, social security. No, because he never told her that this is an object that belongs to someone else. She thought it belonged to him. So therefore, he's exempt and she's exempt. The only solution here is, is that the watchman should take an oath. That that's the money that he gave his mother. The mother can take an oath. She has to be a son that she hid them properly. Even when they were stolen, they're both exempt from paying. In any similar situations. Tess, paragraph 9, the closing paragraph of this chapter. From here we can deduce. That a watchman. Who gave the object to be guarded to his wife. Or to his household members. And he said, listen guys, this is something that somebody gave me to safekeep. Keep it it's an object that I'm guarding for somebody. And they did not treat it responsibly. The guy's wife got busy. She got a phone call. An urgent one. The guy's children got busy. That they, who's they? The wife and the children have to pay. The homeowner himself is exempt. Why? Because we said earlier that he's allowed to be trusting in his wife and children. It's they messed up. Because the rule is that anybody who gives something to someone for safekeeping, he has in mind that the guy's wife and children are going to play a part in that safekeeping. It's the wife and children here who messed up. Misa, there is a story. The Echad with a fellow, Shehitki Pshus, Eitzel Echad. He took and entrusted Pshus. Pshus is translated here as hops, H-O-P-S. It's a grain which adds to the taste of beer. So he gave 
shoots, she shoots hops to someone to guard. He says, here's my hops, guard them. The guy himself had his pile of hops. So, the Omar the Shamsha, he said to his personal valet, He said, you see that pile of hops? Take it and throw it into my beer. Now, there were two piles. One was the guy's personal pile of hops, and the other was the fellow who entrusted him with the hops. The Shamsha and the valet, his, his servant, got mixed up. You know, hops looks like hops. He took from the entrusted pile of hops and threw it into the guy's beer. So now the question is, he used the other guy's hops. That the valet is not liable, because the boss did not say, from this pile, take. From this pile, don't take. There wasn't any clarity. It appeared that he's showing him where to take from. There's no particular concern, this pile, that pile. So he meant no harm, therefore he's not liable. He did good. The owner is also exempt, because he told him, take from there, and he meant there. So how do we rectify this? The guy comes back for his hops, and there's some hops missing. The best way to go about this is he calculates, he estimates how much he put into his beer. And obviously he pays that amount. That is, if the hops help the beer, because it's supposed to improve the taste. But in Nasa, Sheikh Rechem, because of these hops, the beer became sour. It shouldn't happen like it happened. That's why I don't drink beer anymore. I was traumatized once. Potter Milashalim is exempt from paying, because there was no improvement. You only don't pay for spoilage. Whether this or that. The guard, the watchman, is clearly obligated to take an oath. That this was the story. Otherwise, he could be making up the story. So also, any similar scenario. End of chapter 4. Rambam and Mishnah Torah. He'll the laws of She'elah, borrowing, and safekeeping. The laws of the Shomrim, of the various type of watchmen. And we're learning about an unpaid watchman, what his liabilities are. And we're getting into complex scenarios. And in general, many of these laws make up the bulk of the logic laws of Nezikin, of the damage laws, the tort laws in the Torah, as they have to do with claims and counterclaims and oaths and so on and so forth. Very, very fundamental, basic Jewish law. What if somebody was given to watch funds that were collected for poor people? There were funds that were collected from poor people. They were not distributed yet. And this watchman was told, keep an eye on these funds. A or, alternatively, another scenario, money collected for the redemption of captives. And the funds were not ready to be used yet. They didn't encounter the poor people that would merit these funds yet or the captives that needed these funds yet or what have you. And this watchman, this fellow who was supposed to guard these funds, was negligent. He did something silly. He was not that responsible. And they were stolen. He left the door open. He turned off the video monitoring. They were stolen. Not people came in with massive guns. Petty thievery. Potter is exempt. Why is he exempt? He was negligent. The rule of thumb we established earlier is negligence is liable. The answer is, it says, this watchman has to have been given a task to guard, not to distribute to the poor. He was told, hold on to it until the poor show up. He wasn't watching it for anybody. And besides, whose money is this? Well, in the abstract, it belongs to poor people. Which poor people? Uh, I don't know. This is considered, in the halachic vernacular, funds that have no one demanding it. There's no particular person who can come to court and say, you have my funds, because this was not allocated or designated to any particular poor person. So, money that has nobody demanding it. I feel, furthermore, the plot thickens. Even if Bo Ologanovian thieves attacked him, and they said, your money or your life. He had money set aside for redeeming captives. He said, hey, looks like I'm a captive. He took the money and gave the guy. He says, here, take the money, let me go. He redeemed himself. How's that? Porter, he's exempt. He doesn't have to repay it. Why? Because he did exactly what that money was there for. He redeemed the captive. Who? Himself. From a person's perspective, there's no greater captive than himself. So not only does the money not have anybody to demand it, but even he could use it to redeem himself if the guy says, your money or your life. Now the Rambam from Halacha qualifies it. He says, when does the above apply? If the money is not designated for the poor of this zip code, because if it is, then the poor of that zip code become people who are able to demand it. Or to these and these captives sitting in this and this situation. Then it's definitive. 
was for a particular group of poor people. a particular group of captives. who and it is set aside and designated specifically for these people, or as one of my kids used to say, specifically for these people. Suddenly, there are particular living people demanding this money. These poor people, these captives, so to speak. The because he was negligent, he has to pay. If he was not negligent, he should take an oath, as the Torah says, the watchman approaches the court and takes an oath, then he was not negligent. Like any other watchman. What if person A gives person B money, I gave him, or utensils, VIP, he gave him a million dollars, five, a billion dollars, or he gave him a very expensive unit of something. And thieves came upon this watchman and said, your money or your life. So he jumped the gun and he gave them this bundle of money or he gave them this important item simply to save himself from these attackers. So now our big question is, why did these thieves come? Did they come because they heard about this item? In that case, they're after the item. Or did they come because they want this guy and anything he might have? In that case, the item is not an issue here. So he says, if it was estimated, that this guy is a wealthy man and he gave away someone else's package, he's culpable. Because we can safely assume the thieves came to him because he's wealthy. They were after him. <clears throat> so this fellow, Matzalatsmi, is saving himself with somebody else's money. Before you save yourself with somebody else's money, you save yourself with your money. So he's culpable. However, we may know that if he's not particularly a rich guy, he's not particularly a wealthy guy, he's just a good guy, we can safely assume that these thieves, these robbers, did not come to him. Why did they come? Because they know about this object. Because they want that package. In that case, they came for the package. He gave him the package. Vodka is exempt. Any similar scenario would be ruled similarly. Now comes an interesting situation. Gimel 3, if somebody places for safekeeping an object with his fellow, gaming, whether they are utensils, whether they are objects, jewelry, a paytas, or produce, very expensive produce, like, you know, from Gelsons. The thieves came, and stole it. They walked away with the jewelry. They walked away with the produce. Before them, right in front of him. They hooked up a truck and drove away the trailer of produce. Now, had this guy started yelling, thieves, police, we're certain that people would have heard him. They would have come and they would have saved him because it was a populated area. So the question is why he didn't scream. Well, maybe because it wasn't his. I don't know. He didn't want to ruin his vocal cords. Hail the late Sabbath because he didn't yell and scream. This is an act of negligence. And he's liable to pay because when you're in a populated area, you scream. The anything similar. He didn't scream. Why didn't he scream? That's a good question. Like they said to the guy, why didn't you call 911? He says, I didn't know the number. Okay, that was a joke, by the way. Dalid. Nobody is in a laughing mood today. Dalid. Now comes a difficult scenario. Two people, Mr. A and Mr. B, came to Mr. C. And they said, here, this is our money. Take it and guard it. Zembeya, one of them, Mr. A, gave him maybe 100. Zembeya, the other one gave him 200, or maybe vice versa. One of them gave 100, and one of them gave 200. Altogether, it's 300. The guy knows I got $300. 200 from one, 100 from the other. Now it's collection time. Both of them say, I want my 200 back. The guy that gave 200. The other guy says, what are you hacking the Chinese for? I gave the 200. Now, somebody is either lying, probably, or maybe making a mistake, but certainly something's not kosher here. Because 200 and 200 is 400, and he only got 300. The guy who was given the object for safekeeping, the watchman, he says, I'll tell you the honest truth. I don't know. You guys all look alike. One of you gave me 200, one of you gave me 100. I don't know. So now we have a problem. Because he admits that one of them, and he doesn't know which one gave him 200. As long as each one of them is prepared to swear that he's the one that gave the 200, then that oath allows him to collect. And then he takes it. Why? Because the watchman can't swear anything. He doesn't know. When you don't know, you can't swear. Like the law of anyone who swears and takes. Now, this watchman is in deep trouble. The Yitzhak Masayim was there, he has to get 200 to the first guy. Masayim was there, 200 to the second guy. Omapsik made the base. Where does the 400 come from? The answer is from his own money. Why is that? Because he's negligent. He should have written down. He should have taken a picture of the guy's driver's license. He should have written down 200, 100, give him a receipt. You take each person's name, you write it on his purse, and that way you have no if ands, and buts about it. He was negligent. Now the scenario changes if they broke both together. 
the two people brought him three hundred dollars in one purse. Then they came and collected. And each one says, eh, the two hundred is mine, the two hundred is mine. One thing we know is they gave him three hundred in one purse. He's not responsible. The best thing he could do is give a hundred to this one, and one hundred to this one. And the third hundred sits in his own safe forever. And forever is a long time. Until one of these people confesses he was lying. Because he says to them, listen guys, being that I saw, that you're not that concerned or suspicious, one to the other, and you brought it in one bundle, so I see you trust each other. That I didn't trouble myself, that I should have to file in my memory bank, and remember me, who gave me the hundred, or me, who gave me the two hundred, you guys put it in the same envelope, it's three hundred, have a good day. Similar scenario, they gave him two utensils, two candlesticks, sterling silver, nine, seven, two. One was a large candlestick, the other one was a large item, and the other was a smaller one, a, large, a papa candlestick and a baby candlestick. And each one of them says, I need when he came to collect. Each one wants to collect the big one. Problem is, there's only one big one. The other one's a small one. And the watchman says, Ain't he a day? I don't know. How should I know? You guys look the same. Somebody's lying here. They both have to take an oath. We hope that the taking of the oath will stop them from lying. People are afraid to take false oaths. But if they do both take an oath, he gives the larger one to one of them, and he has to pay out the funds of the value of the larger one to the other one. Why? Because he doesn't know, and they both took oaths. And he gets to keep the smaller one. So again, he loses money. That teaches us that people who are given things for safekeeping have to be careful. What if they brought him in one bundle? Both fellows brought the two items in one bundle. And in this case, they trust each other. Same scenario as before. So he gives the smaller object to one of them. And the funds of a value of the smaller object to the second. And the balance. They should sit with him in his safe. Until one confesses to the other, I was lying. Or if they don't, I'll lay them forever. Next scenario, two people demanded of this watchman. One says, I'm the guy that gave you this object to guard. The other guy says, what are you talking about? I'm the guy. They asked the watchman, no, which one is it? He says, I have no idea. It's certainly one of you. I'm not sure which one. And they're both ready to take an oath. Similar situation. Two people came, they each had an animal, let's say a sheep or a cow. And they come to the shepherd who's shepherding sheep or shepherding cows. And they said, here's my sheep, here's my sheep. And I'm going to give you my sheep to shepherd. That's what shepherds do. They take sheep from people to shepherd. One of the two sheep died. You know, when they gave it, when the two guys gave it to the shepherd, there was a balagan there, it was busy, and he doesn't know whose was whose. He has to pay them both. If in the discussion, commentary say, they just both left it in the flock, there was not a clear agreement, there was discussion, and then they, they, had, to, they had to go, they just left it there. And then he places the animal in front of them. He leaves, he tells the guys, you fight it out. And he could sit there until one confesses, and he's lying, until they agree to sell it and to divide it, because one is dead and one is alive, and usually an owner of a sheep knows his sheep. Hey, five. <clears throat> somebody gives produce to his fellow for safekeeping. Now, what do you do when somebody gives you produce for safekeeping? You put it with the produce. Do not mix it with your own produce. You've got to keep the other guy's produce separate of your own produce. What if he mixed it? What if he mixed it? He did mix it. He didn't listen. He mixed it. He didn't know. Then he has to estimate how much the safekeeping produce was. And then produce has a certain percentage that goes bad because of time or because of rodents or, or rotting or whatever. He should calculate how much went bad. The and he should calculate what part of that is of the safekeeping produce. The Yitin lady should give it to the fellows here to collect it. After he swore. So he has to, the best thing he can do is to estimate how much it was, and then all produce has a certain amount that goes bad. He does a guess of that, and he keeps trucking. Stop it, man. What if he used some? You know, he's living, and this is his produce. It was potatoes, and he had to make a chunk. So he went and used it. But the other comment is stopping. He's not exactly sure how many he used. Then he should subtract, he should subtract the standard norm of what goes bad and the standard norm of what he used and give it back. Now the question is, what is the standard norm of what goes bad? Well, it depends on the produce and it depends on the place. For wheat and for shelled rice, four and a half kabin for every kur. There are 180 kabin to a kur. 
So we're assuming that 2.5% rotted. 2.5%. This aid in Vilidechen for barley and for millet, Tisha Kabin the Cholkor, nine Kabin for every core. The Chusmin or the Zerapishton, Bigibela, the Eidash, Einakol. For buckwheat, flax seeds in their stalks and unshelled rice, Sholish, Sin the Cholkor. Three saw for every core. There are 30 saw in a core, so the amount deducted is one tenth of the total. And this amount, either the 2.5% for one type of produce or the 10% for another type, annually, because annually there is that loss. When does it If the original measurement was made at harvest time, when produce is dried out by the arid summer air. The hexalane was returned at harvest time when the produce is still dried out. If he measured it, he measured it in harvest time. When it's dried out, the hexalane may suck and then he returned it in the rainy season when everything is moist and swollen. He does not deduct the spoilage, but because in this season it absorbs moisture from the air and it, sw- it swells. You have even more. He deducts one sixth, which I believe is 16.666%, for wine. That is the amount of wine that goes bad, I guess. Because the wine is absorbed by the barrels in which it is stored. So it, 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 it evaporates. And three lugin of oil for 100, that's 3%. Oil does not absorb in the barrel as much as the wine does. Leg umechza shmorim, one and a half lugin for shmorim, for sediment, for dregs. The leg umechza bella, and one and a half for absorption. Im hoya mezukok, if the containers are old, and the mates of the shmorim does not make a deduction. I'm sorry, in, in, I, I said that wrong, please forgive me. Im hoya mezukok, if the oil was mezukok refined, and the mates of the shmorim, then he doesn't take a deduction for dregs, because refined oil have no dregs, because they've been removed already, but if the containers are old, so they've already absorbed everything they're going to absorb in previous years, and the mates of the he doesn't deduct for absorption, because they're not going to absorb anymore. Moving right along to six, paragraph six out of seven. That's why Peter Shane and a person who trusts produce that has not been measured to a watchman, the air running Peter and the watchman mixed it together with his own produce. And he did not measure them. The owner didn't measure them, and the watchman didn't measure them. Well, this is completely and totally negligent, because there's no way of knowing who did what. So the watchman is negligent. If the owner says, So much and so much was the amount of stuff I gave you, of produce I gave you. And the watchman says, I'll tell you the truth, any day I don't know. He has to pay what the guy demands. Without an oath, because he became culpable to pay. And he doesn't know how much. The only way to get out of this is if he takes an oath. But you can't take an oath if you don't know what you're swearing. So he's just in a bad situation. Why? Because he should have measured. And he should know what he has. And he just did a very silly thing. He set himself up. He cannot take an oath because he doesn't know. And the other guy claims to know. Now the Rambam says, And the Rambam uses this expression. It means there's no particular source. The Rambam is taking it from, usually the Rambam takes it from a particular source in the mission of the Talmud in the discussion. He says, this is what my teacher ruled. The Rambam's number one teacher was the famous Ri Migosh. Rabbi Yosef Halevi is the Ri of Yosef Migosh. And his teacher was the Rif. The Rabbi Zalman, his teacher, who is the Rif. Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi, the famous Halachic scholar. So these rulings were made by my teacher and his teacher. That the guy is just in a bad situation because he, he did something he shouldn't have done. He accepted produce that was never measured and he doesn't have any information to back up an oath. The Rambam says this is an across the board rule for any watchman who is obligated to pay. And he says, I know I have to pay, but I don't know how much I have to pay. That's a bad position to be in because he can't take an oath. And the owner says, We do know. And it was worth so and so. They have a right to collect without an oath because they do know and he doesn't know. The who provided that? What they're claiming is logical. They are claiming something that they could be presumed or assumed to be able to possess. If a couple of schleppers are coming said that they put a million dollars, we're not going to believe them. They're lying. These guys have never seen a million dollars. Now, before the guard, the watchman pays, we can go to the court and establish a ban of excommunication on me. Excommunicating any party who would take more than he deserves. What's the logic behind this law? It's a very tough law. This guy accepted something without knowing what he accepted, and he has no basis to swear. And the other guy claims he's certain. Think about this. Work it out. What if Shehipka, that's why he's a 
What if the person says that he gave a purse full of gold coins to the watchman? And he was negligent. So that's clear, that he gave a purse. The owner says it, was, it had gold coins. What's clear is that he was negligent. The owner says, It was 200 gold dinner. A lot of money. And the watchman says, I agree that there were dinars there. But I don't know how many. So this is the famous biblical mode of a mixus. The guy admits to part of the claim. Omar and he says, Hashar any day, I don't know about the rest. So the halacha is biblically he's obligated to take an oath. Mode of a mixus, a guy who admits to hat, it's one of the biblical oaths. Can he take an oath? No, because he doesn't know what he's swearing. He doesn't know how much there was there. Then he he can't swear, therefore, unfortunately, the only thing he can do is pay because the other guy claims he does know. Commission is as we will explain. Along the same lines. Zayin, Mace Aviv. If his father dies, man's father dies. And the father left him a clothes sack. Now, what's in the sack? I don't know, millions of dollars. I guess he didn't have a chance to look in the sack. He was running to the airport to catch a plane for the funeral. He says to his friend, do me a favor, watch this sack. It's very precious. The other guy was negligent. The one who gave him the sack, whose father died, says, I'll tell you the truth, I'm not sure what was in the sack. Maybe there was pearls. That's a lot of money. Very, very expensive. Now, the watchman says the same thing. I know I was negligent. But I don't know how much I have to pay. You say it was pearls, I say it was glass. How much is glass? Three dollars. The other guy says, what are you talking about? I want a hundred thousand dollars. So what's the deal? Neither of them are sure. There's only one thing we're sure of. Negligence. Shura Sadin, Shani Yang Rebetayin Azu, says that Ambam, it's an interesting expression to use. I maintain that the ruling in this instance is Sheyeshova HaShemer, Betakonas Chachamim, that the watchman should swear, according to the ordinance of our sages, which is explained in greater detail in chapter 6, Halacha 1. She'ein Ebeshu say, one thing he knows is that he doesn't have it. That is an oath he can take because he knows he doesn't have it. Now we have the idea of Gilgal Shua rolling another oath into the first oath. He can also include in his oath that he's not sure that it had more than so and so because if it was glass, he knows it was $3. Maybe more, but he doesn't know. He should pay that which he agreed to, that which he confessed, that which he admitted to. He says it could be $3. Any other situation, because here both of them are unsure. It's not like it was before where the owner said, I'm sure. Neither of them were sure. But of course, needless to say, the owner whose father just died says it could have been pearls, and this guy says it could have been pebbles, could have been glass, who knows? Now the Rambam concludes with a story. There's a story with a fellow, where he entrusted a closed sack to his fellow. The sack was sealed. Unfortunately, the guy was negligent, so he's guilty, he's liable. The guy who gave him the sack says, you know what was in this sealed sack? Let me tell you what was in there. Very expensive stuff. It contained gold jewelry, pearls, very expensive stuff. It's worth millions. Designer, Beverly Hills, I bought it. And the guard says, the watchman says, I'll tell you the honest truth. I don't know. Any day, I have no idea. But you know, I'll guess. Maybe it was what you thought was gold or scrap metal. Maybe what you thought were pearls was sand. I don't know. You want a million dollars, five million dollars? I'll give you 20 cents. Okay, 80 cents. The Yomrukhachamim, our sages say, that being that the fellow who gave it to him claims he knows. The other fellow, the watchman, says he doesn't know. That's a problem. You're in a bad position, mister. Especially with negligence. Yeshava Balapikotan let the owner of the package take an oath that it had what he claims. He says it had, because he's sure the Yitl and let him take. Provided that, by that his claim is something that could be logical. That it could be that he had that and he gave that. It would be normal to give it to a guy like this. You don't give a very expensive package to a schlepper. Now the question is, it's not usual for the owner to swear. Usually the watchman swears. Why is it different here? The, watch, the, the owner swears. The answer is, because there's no way that the watchman is even obligated to take an oath. Why? Because it's not like he says, yes, there were gold dinners, I'm not sure how many. Which we said earlier, his motive evicts us, is admitting to part of the claim. And he's obligated biblically to take an oath. No, here the scenario is very different. This guy says, I want my gold and uh, pearls back. And my precious items back. I know it was that. And the other guy says, maybe it was glass and sand. Even if he 
admits and he says, Boringly uncertain, Shreya Malisim, that it was filled with scrap metal. By rabbinic law, the watchman can swear a rabbinic, take a rabbinic oath, and he's exempt. Why? Because it's like the claim was for wheat and the admission was for barley. There is no partial admission here. It's a different track. So in this law, where one says he knows for sure and the other guy says, I don't know, maybe it was just junk, there is no admission to require the oath. Therefore, the other guy takes the oath and can collect. We're just scratching the surface here with these laws and the upcoming laws of litigation. We're going to deal with the detailed logic of these laws upcoming, specifically in the laws of litigation, chapter 3, paragraph 8, end of chapter 5.